Welcome to today's Barna Talks. Put the phrase well-being in the workplace into Google, you'll get about 4 million results. Clearly, it's a hot topic. And just as clearly, once you follow some of the links, there are thousands of interpretations of what the phrase means. Thousands of providers of healthy workplace models, tools and information. Thousands of researchers looking into the subject. So what is well-being in the workplace? And what are employers doing about it? In today's Varna Talks, I'm joined by Dr. Sally Hemming. Sally's an experienced HR leader with a keen passion for well-being in the workplace. She works in partnership with leading organisations and has recently completed her doctorate in psychology with a study examining the support needs for workers managing long-term health conditions. Welcome, Sally. Thank you. So we're going to discuss with Sally her observations on the role of well-being in the workplace and gain her thoughts on how businesses are managing this. So, Sally, firstly, what prompted you to embrace workplace well-being as a specialism? Yeah, it's a a really good question, Joe. And there were probably two main reasons that I became interested in, in aspects of workplace well-being. The first reason is that my background's predominantly in employee relations. So I spent a lot of time managing and supporting casework um, in different types of organizations that centered around aspects of health mm. and aspects of how people think and feel in the workplace. Now, people will understand that much of the way in which we manage casework really is regulated by employment legislation. So I had quite a lot of experience with that and certainly quite a bit of experience of disability-related casework, which obviously very clearly touches upon aspects of, of well-being, if you think about it, from a clinical and, and health perspective. So What I found over the years was that there was a real tension at times between how we regulated health from a risk perspective in the workplace, so how we managed casework and how we supported workers experiencing health problems, say, and and challenges to their well-being, and between the reality of the employment experience that employers wanted their workers to have. So on the one hand, employers were sort of saying, well, Sally, you know, we want people to be engaged. We want people to have exceptional health and well-being. We want to support them with that. But in another breath, we were working, and quite rightly, with, you know, regulatory and policy frameworks that sometimes made that quite difficult in terms of giving people the space to have a an open dialogue with their employer about their support needs that actually was away from the formality, say, of, you know, a capability meeting or a reasonable adjustment discussion. Mm. Sometimes, you know, which were with third party providers. And and I became, I suppose, um, you know, frustrated with that situation. And that really spurred me on to think, okay, well, you know, can I find out about that and actually see if I can research what that looks like in the workplace in terms of workplace support needs. Yeah, it's really, really interesting. And, and you know, I guess we're talking a lot more now, aren't we, about health and well-being. You know, 2020 has, has taken a strange uh, term for everyone. And, and we, we are hearing a lot more conversations about, about health and mental health in particular and well-being. And that's really risen on the agenda. But I guess looping back, you know, why, why is it important for employers to, to embrace that? 
I think that the overriding reason that employers should be embracing workers' health and well-being is because if workers are not in a good place, if they don't think and feel about life, everything in of which work is, is a huge part, in a way that means they have the energy to meet the demands on them, it just makes things difficult, Joe, And it makes things incredibly difficult, potentially, for people to meet work demands and actually to perform and be productive in the way that, that they might want to. So what I mean by that is that all of us individually have, you know, a particular amount of energy resources at any one time and a particular amount of resources to draw on to get things done. And frankly, if those resources aren't enough to meet the demands we think we need to meet, actually, whether they're real or not, that actually just increases the risks of stress, you know, of mental health problems. And then raises questions about people's ability to meet the work demands that may be Mm. on them, therefore affecting productivity, etc. So this is really about people being able to do the job that they want to do in the way they want to when they need to. Yeah, I was reading a report by the um, Office uh, for National Statistics from 2019. I think I'm writing saying 141 million days were lost to sickness absence which is incredible. So so what, what is the crucial role employers can play? Mm. So and just picking up on that, actually, just mentioning about sickness absence, employers aren't going to be able to avoid all aspects of sickness absence. And I think mm. employers need to, be, need to be clear on that. So a lot of the sickness absence that, that people take is actually related to common health problems, mm. cold, flu, etc., and things such as that. And then you have... Sickness absence due to other health problems and perhaps health conditions, so mental health being one of those, also musculoskeletal conditions and other types of chronic conditions as well. Mm-hmm. So it's it's very mixed and quite complicated. So I think what's important with regards to well-being narratives and discussions in the workplace is that this is, doesn't just centre around sickness absence. Yeah you know, a recognition that, you know, sometimes you don't have to be 100% well to keep working. And actually with modifications and in working with your employer, actually a lot of the time people who otherwise might have been absent from the workplace um, could actually continue working. And I think, I mean, COVID-19 has really sort of, you know, shone a light on that and the ability Mm -hmm. for organizations to work differently and it leads on to that really Sally I guess in in terms of what role employers can play you know if we're looking to encourage I guess or support people into the workplace you know what what can employers do for that Mm. so I think employers can do a lot and my research has really kind of focused on some key areas that employers can can support and I think Employer support for health and well-being is is a good news story, actually. For me, what employer support is concerned with is about empowering people to do what they need to to maintain good health and well-being. Now, although my research focused on people quite specifically with long-term health conditions, so things such as arthritis, ME, etc., what was clear is that workers didn't really need to be guided in terms of being told what to do to look after their health and well-being and aspects of a, a health condition in my research sample. But what they did need was ways of working that enabled them to undertake those behaviours. And that support in the workplace really rested on just a few simple things. And I don't think this will surprise employers. 
One is people's relationship with their line manager. So people's sense of permission to do things when they need to do them. And if actually people didn't perceive they were able to undertake the behaviours they might need to, to look after their health and well-being, it was then about understanding when they could and if they might be able to. So what was clear was that line managers play an absolutely key role, whether there is an open conversation about things at all. And that Mm -hmm. is that workers will perceive what's possible. And if they don't think it is, then perhaps they won't do it. So that can undermine health and well-being actually very, very quickly if there is not an open dialogue and narrative around this in, in the workplace. And secondly, what was really important in terms of workplace support was the ability to modify work. Now, that could be the job itself, but actually, more often than not, it was about ways of working. So that was concerned with working hours, that was concerned with where you work, so location, and the ability for people to flex to changing situations and situations that actually could be changing in their life, but nonetheless having a work effect. Mm -hmm. So rather than thinking about sort of work life as two separate entities, what the research showed in terms of employer support was that we needed employers to have a more open mind that actually workers were grappling with life demands and work demands at the same time and in work and home spaces. So Mm -hmm. for me, employer support is really about open conversations with line managers, line managers understanding they have an absolutely critical role to play in whether employers perceive they are empowered to look Mm -hmm. after and manage their health and well-being. And secondly, it's about ways of working and people's ability to work flexibly and adapt to the situations that they're living and working in. Yeah, and and that's really interesting, I guess, particularly that second point around flexibility and and employers having to grasp that flexibility, because, you know, given the situation that a lot of us are finding ourselves in at the moment, employers are having to be more flexible in adapting to home working and and, and hours, etc, and integrating home and work life together. So it will be interesting to see perhaps how that's then reflected, you know, if we were to look back on your same study in 12 months time to see how that's changed, perhaps. But what do you see as the top trends that will will be affecting the the well-being and health uh, of individuals? And how do we make it stick, you know, as that top priority for businesses? Yeah, that's a a really interesting question. The important thing to remember is that mental health was already on the agenda, certainly before this year. Mm. And and I think that's good news. You know, there's lots of activity that's been happening in that space and people will be familiar with that. So interventions such as mental health first aid training, there's been some great resources coming out of charities such as MIND, City Mental Health Alliance, organisations such as that. There was a big government report, the Stevenson Farmer Review around mental health. So this isn't kind of new news, certainly in my mind. You know, we were mm. already talking about mental health before this year. But what this year, ha- I think, has served to do, I think there's an opportunity for employers and workers, actually, to really sort of grab this and make this stick, as you suggest, is that 2020 has shone a light on the importance of mental health for everybody regardless of clinical status. 
certainly much of my HR practitioner experience and in the employee relations field centered health and well-being conversations around clinical status, i.e. do you have a diagnosed condition, depression, stress, anxiety, for example. What 2020 has done is it's enabled everyone to be looked at in terms of health health and well-being and mental health. What I also think is that there is a risk that in focusing employer attention solely on mental health as something that needs to be supported, that we neglect other areas that actually Mm -hmm. were important before the pandemic and remain important now. I think what that means for employers is that it's a careful balance around the decision making of where you want to target workplace support. If employer support is targeted at workers themselves and actually helping workers do the things that are good for them, i.e. via empowerment and enabling Mm -hmm. people to do those things, then actually those broad level support interventions, you know, be it a service or, or a benefit, for example, become less important because actually people will be able to do the things they need to anyway. And I think that then could actually alleviate some of the pressures that employers and particularly line managers might perceive to be their responsibility when it comes to supporting people's mental health and and well-being in in the workplace. And for me, the only way to do that is for any conversation to be a collaborative one um, Mm. between senior leadership teams certainly operational line managers and workers themselves. You provide resilience training. What is that? Resilience is lots of different things to different people, to to be totally honest. And I think when I started out working and providing services in the health and wellbeing space, resilience was sort of targeted from two perspectives. One, it was about if we tell people and educate people on what resilience is, then they'll be more able to deal with work demands, actually, no matter how high they are which isn't isn't true and mm. I'm sure that we all have an appreciation of that but resilience really for me put simply is about enabling people to move through change and to move through change whilst minimizing the negative effects of that experience so that could be effects on mental health for example that could be effects on physical health or social health as well so and what I mean by social health is you know relationships with others and social support resources resilience is really about our ability to deal with things quickly and to navigate change with least adversity But that doesn't mean that it's not hard and that doesn't mean that it's not painful. So for me, an important thing to think about and the reality of of resilience is that actually it is tough. Sometimes it's really emotional, but it is because what you're doing is you're moving through adverse situations. And it's why going through things that we've been through before become easier um, Mm. and less stressful because actually we've been there and we've done it and therefore we have experience of, of getting through it. It's really interesting, really interesting. And and from what you have seen, what what are some of the costs for employers who who don't get this right and and who don't address employee wellbeing? I think for me, there's some really really obvious costs. And and the one thing I would I would say sort of firsthand is that many of the costs in workers' health and wellbeing space, I think, aren't 
aren't explicit to employers. So, you know, there's no way employers can fully know at any one time what's going on in each individual worker's life and and how that manifests in in the workplace. That's a challenge. I think those costs to how home life, for example, or health status might be interacting with some someone's job and work productivity is really, really hard to measure, really, really difficult to gauge unless you're looking at, you know, very often things like sickness absence for example so we don't measure presenteeism particularly well and things like that can be unhelpful in terms of evaluating costs but I think also what's important to mention is that one of the greatest costs I think with employers overlooking health and well-being and not thinking that it matters is really the employer brand and who you are to work for In my experience of talking to working people, particularly with health problems, common health problems, chronic health problems, etc., people want to come into work and be productive. They don't want to come into work and then have to take time off sick. They don't want to have to come into work and be unable to do their job. And I think sometimes employers need to remember that workers want to be productive, they want to do well. And when they're not, there's always something going on in the health and well-being space. Mm. If you overlook those conversations, and I think if you overlook a compassionate relationship with your workers, I think you are running the risks of your workers not having a good employment experience. And that then has the opportunity to affect, you know, what it's like to work for you, not just internally, but also in terms of your value proposition externally. Workers looking at the market, who do I want to work for, who has a great reputation. So even though health and wellbeing costs may look local and may look embedded internally in your organisation, actually, I think some of the costs of not doing anything about health and wellbeing actually could transcend outside of the workplace, which is a Mm. much bigger issue for employers. I I really like that phrase, compassionate relationship. It, It kind of seems to sum up that whole whole ethos that, you, that you're talking about and I've, I've been listening to some great things in terms of what some of the biggest employers are doing so for example Unilever they support employees across mental health and have introduced a clear focus on they, they call it purposeful well-being mm. and, and health PwC has introduced a spiritual well-being as part of one of its key pillars in terms of what you've noticed employers doing in terms of your relationships with them, what what are the companies who have got it right? What are they doing? The employers that I've worked with have done a number of different things, but also a number of similar things. So the things that I perceive have worked well are where employers have targeted support uh, specifically on mental health. Organisations and workers want to talk about mental health. They want to talk about how to have better mental health. And they also want to have a conversation about how you support one another within the workplace when it comes to mental and psychological resources. So in my experience, that works well. Different organisations I've worked for have done different things. So some of that workplace support has included mental health first aid training. In other organisations, it has included so on-site counsellors, CBT training via employee assistance programmes. 
And actually on EAP programs, what I would say is where I have seen or at least perceive things to work better is where those EAP programs are promoted and promoted repeatedly as something that is a good service for workers to use. Because I think often EAP programs are overlooked, even though they perhaps are embedded in in health and wellbeing strategies and programs, often for, for quite some time. Another thing that stands out to me in terms of what works well is those organisations that make efforts to build and promote social support networks, whatever they may be. Now, these are common in diversity and inclusion spaces, for example, where you may have network groups, for example, so a women's network group. But these also work well when it comes to aspects of health and well-being. So that could be a network group for people affected by long-term health conditions, whether directly or indirectly. That means that you allow workers to be involved with a group when actually it doesn't affect them directly themselves, but could affect somebody in their life, for example, a family member or a child, etc. And that serves very well, I think. Enhances the inclusivity of health and wellbeing discussions, which I think can be quite helpful. Succinctly, for me, the things that work well, mental health, workplace interventions, but assessing how they work, whether they're valuable to your workers and to social support networks. And and finally, I mean, 2020 has been tough for us all. From a personal perspective, how how do you manage your own well-being? What what have you you discovered about yourself over, over the past few months to help you manage that? For me personally, this year has shown that we are all very alike. And I think what it has also shown is how vulnerable we also all can be. For me, that's given me a level of comfort that is okay to kind of step back. And I say that in the sense that, you know, 2020 for me, put frankly, a lot of my work dried up because I was working as an independent contractor. So I've had to change and I've had to adapt. But what that's made me realize is actually the things that matter to me personally and actually how I want to work. And what it's also shown to me is that for me, what's absolutely fundamentally important is values-based organizations and compassion and actually bringing organizations together in a way that works for everyone rather than just individual exclusive groups. And for me, I just think that takes a huge amount of pressure off. It makes the idea of working less stressful and it makes the idea of actually getting back into the workplace post-pandemic and embedding back into that all the more exciting, actually. Well, Sally, it's been great speaking with you today. You've provided some real insight and food for thought. Thank you so much. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Varna's podcast. Today I was joined by Dr. Sally Hemming discussing the important issue of well-being in the workplace. If you'd like to connect with us, please visit varnahrresourcing.co.uk or follow our company page on LinkedIn. Until next time.